0: Hey guys, welcome to The Tap and Go. My name is Matt. My name is Freddie. Each week we bring you your rugby fix with interviews with past and present rugby professionals. And we get their views on the latest sporting issues. Hey guys, welcome back to The Tap and Go, where we talk all things rugby with people from all over the world. To mark the halfway point in this series, we've got something slightly different for you today. This is definitely one for all you diehard rugby fans with interest in the behind-the-scenes politics of the game. As we're joined by the CEO of World Rugby, Brett Gosper. Brett, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you?
2: It's a pleasure. Uh, I'm good, thank you very much. For
1: sure. So I guess like, with the whole corona situation going on, do you mind giving us a quick overview of what's changed in rugby due to the COVID situation and what's going to... Well, just a quick overview of all of that.
2: Yeah, look, it's quite complex in the sense that we're looking at what's happening at rugby, obviously all over the world from a global perspective. Um, Our main concern is the high loss of revenues for clubs in in the key markets but also the loss of international rugby um, which funds the national governing bodies in each country and develops the sport and grows the sport and so on so the interest is to get back playing as quickly as possible firstly probably with just broadcast revenues because crowds are limited unless you're in New Zealand you'll have seen super rugby looks like nothing's ever happened in the world Um, they're getting Thirty to 40,000 people to their games and you're seeing some great games out there. And obviously that's generating some gate revenue as well as broadcast. But in most parts of the world, it looks like gate won't come back for a fair, for a fair time. And it's a big part of revenues of some governing bodies and and in particular, uh, you know, the rugby football union in England and so on, that's a big part of, of their revenues. But one step at a time, what we're looking to do, The Southern Hemisphere missed their July window um, inbound, which is revenue for the Southern Hemisphere unions. Um, Their rugby championship has obviously uh, not happened either in the window that it was meant to happen in. So we're looking at a new, almost combined window around October, November, or late October into early parts of December, where we can make up some of that lost revenue. With with a a condensed rugby championship in the south, Um, and the north is looking to make up one or two games of the Six Nations, plus um, uh, some other fixtures that may happen in October, November as well. So everyone's looking at that. Uh, Again, uh, you know, in order for that to happen, there are some regulations that need to be changed, and a lot of conversations have been happening between ourselves and clubs to try and work out you know what's an equitable way of 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 sharing the pain in in fact when we do come back into playing because the players play for both the club and country and therefore um, everyone wants them uh, for their purpose of generating revenue and, 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 and those club players are mainly salaried by the club so it needs to be managed in a in a in a in a, in a correct way.
0: So you talk about that. So if you take say USA, for example, have recently had to declare bankruptcy in their rug program, how is World Rugby trying to help that those nations recover?
2: Yeah, like what I was the other thing I was gonna say, so calendar is the first area that we're looking at to try and manage a you know return to play. But the other aspect is obviously with the lack of revenue, all unions have taken, you know, some extreme measures. Many have cut some have cut their workforce by 80%, cut their salaries by 40 to 50 percent. At World Rugby, we've cut our salaries between twenty and thirty percent, depending on where we are. Um, That to provide more money, Um, we've also borrowed against our reserves. We are fortunate enough to have completed a World Cup, which generates eighty percent of our revenue um, for World Rugby itself, and and our next World Cups in three years' time. So we we actually were quite fortunate uh, landing our revenue between the you know just before the crisis and having a a bit of time before the next uh, revenues come in and we manage those revenues over a four year period. And what we've done is we've borrowed against those revenues, borrowed against our reserves, which sit at between 150 to 200 million pounds and set up a kind of relief fund of hundred million pounds to help out unions where COVID has pushed them over the edge, uh, created a lack of revenue because of the lack of inventory, um, sponsorship pressures, all of the rest of it. So yes, like the United States, we've stepped in and, structured uh, some financing and, and repayment programs over a longer period of time that allows people some relief. And we've been, we'll be doing that with the, with the top strongest 10 financial unions. All of them will be seeking some form of advancement on, on, on payment like that, um, as well as you know 20, 20 to 30 other unions requiring some help. So we, we've set ourselves up a little bit as a relief bank at the same time. Mm-hmm. And there's an independent group that assesses requirements and depoliticizes the, the the distribution of that of that relief.
1: Sure. So I guess taking a step back and moving on and looking at, I guess, tier two nations as a whole in international rugby at the moment. Um, I guess some, we, we often see sort of players from these tier two nations in particular sort of the Pacific Islands moving to these tier one nations and playing for not their respective birth countries, but their new adopted countries. What are some ways, I guess, to sort of strengthen these Tier 2 nations and sort of keep the players playing for their birth countries?
2: Yeah, look, it's important that, first of all, players come north usually from the Pacific Islands, and even more so now, you, you obviously have players coming from Australia, even New Zealand, Argentina, into the because the two, actually the three highest-paying leagues now in the world are, are in England, France and Japan and it's quite right that the players can ply their trade and earn, earn money for playing rugby Mm, where they can. But what's important for us also is the the strength is maintained on the international scene. So we've got a very strong world cup that generates money to develop the game. That's the virtuous cycle that we, that we, we hope to remain in. So it's important that Samoa, Fiji, Tonga, um, retain talent for those international games. So they, they, they're qualifying those players. It's, it's harder now, um, you know, we've moved the residency rule from three years to five years, so it's much harder to capture to capture those players on a short-term basis by Northern Unions. That was one move that happened in the last cycle from a governance point of view. So therefore, the capturing of those players would have to happen at a lot earlier age for it to be effective in terms of... Sorry about this, my other phone. going. You know, um, and I think that was a, a strong move in favour of, of, of the, uh, the unions. But at the end of the day, there will be opportunities, either through education, um, future contracts and so on, for younger players. They will head into places like England and, and New Zealand um, for the good of those players. And yes, they'll be able to choose whether they want to play, whether it be for the All Blacks, England or their home nation. And they, these are often economic choices of well-being as well so you, you, know, you, you, you can't uh, completely um, a, a avoid that that opportunity for players um, or negate it so it's a it's a matter of in, ensuring that there's enough of a reservoir of those local players to provide the competitions required
0: yeah that's understandable so obviously the rugby world cup happened this year and on the whole it was an unbelievable success but one thing which got noted is that some teams turn up and it's a smaller teams turn up and it's an honor for them to be there. In the past they are sort of a spectator in the tournament. Is there a way, like they do in sevens, to have sort of a plate or a bowl competition, so like a tier two, so a country like Georgia, Italy, to be so they continue playing throughout the tournament?
2: Yeah, the trouble is it's an incredibly complex tournament already where you've got forty eight games over a six week period. There are high costs involved with keeping those players in hotels and boarded over the time and and um, you know, generally, a bit like the Olympics, once, those t- once their playing days are over, rather than leave groups of you know, 30-odd players and officials hanging around for a good time and so on, it's actually best to get them on their way, get them back to their, to their countries, their clubs and so on. Um, it avoids any incidents. It cuts cost. And as I said, it's already highly complex. Uh, over 10 different centres Forty-eight games over six weeks is incredibly ambitious already. So if you're trying to run in parallel uh, another mini competition and so on, um, a you know it it just the complexity is 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 too much. In 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 fact, Um, so you know we have looked at these things in the past, but it just doesn't seem to be workable from a logistics point of view. You know we've even had we debate often whether a women's World Cup should accompany a men's World Cup. And there are, you know, two schools of thought on that. A, it's another, it's, it's highly complex. The women should have their own day in the sun, um, not not shaded by the men's game at the same time. Other people argue, well, actually, having it at the same time with the men's game, you're using the men's game to draw attention to the women's game and that can help in the short term as well. So, you know, these are the debates that happen. But again, the complexity of putting both on at the same time is is, is an issue or an element and a cost factor for the host for the host because it's... it. it it costs, you know, around 240 million pounds to put on a World Cup in England, and almost twice that in Japan. So, it's a very, it's a, it's a very costly exercise, um, and you, you obviously need high revenues, which we do fortunately have, to to, to 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 push through those costs and make some good good surplus for the sport.
1: And Freddie just briefly mentioned, I guess, the takeaways that we had from the World Cup, and it was massively positive, and so on. It redeveloped the game in Japan, and I guess you publicly stated. <clears throat> That you wanted um, U- the USA to sort of bid for the 2027 World Cup. What does sort of um, what, what does a World Cup bring to sort of a nation like Japan on the USA in the current world?
2: Yeah, look, it's it's uh, again. There's a, there's a, there's always been a desire by rugby, whether it be the the club games, the unions. Um, everyone knows that the biggest sports market is the United States is incredibly reliant and has been up until the Japan World Cup on two broadcast markets. Broadcast is 60% of the revenue of a World Cup, followed by sponsorship, hospitality, ticketing, which goes to the local union is obviously very important as well in helping to pay the cost that a local organiser has to pay to put the sport on. But for world rugby, it comes from broadcast um, and sponsorship uh, and hospitality in particular. As I said, the ticketing goes to the Post-Union, um, we are as a sport. England and France uh, are probably, as i say, sixty percent of the broadcast market versus you know, the rest of the world in terms of revenues. Therefore, Japan was chosen, a to develop the sport in Asia as a participation sport, but also to develop a, a broadcast market. It's obviously the third biggest industrial uh, country in the world. Um, it is or the third biggest economy. Um, and a very big broadcast market. And at this Rugby World Cup, it was the number three broadcast score, which in terms of revenues, it went from earning us about $2.5 million in England to about 30 to 40 million in Japan. So if we can sustain that, we've got a third broadcast market for World Cup now, which sits pretty much comparably alongside England and France for a broadcast contract. They sit a bit higher than that, but it's it's in the ballpark. The United States is the other big broadcast market that we'd love to tap. And until you, our belief is either the US team has to get into a semi-final at least or win a World Cup to really engender the interest of the, of the nation. But what can really accelerate that, as it did for FIFA, was actually them hosting World Cup in their own market. Now, that has to be voted by council. That has to be bid against other, other countries that would feel that they definitely want to host a, a, a World Cup too. So it's not something we can orchestrate. It's something we can encourage and something that we can hope for. And And what we know is if the US become a host of a World Cup, there'll be a lot of effort in developing their team to do well as, as we helped Japan develop their side to be competitive from England. Actually, prior to the England World Cup in 2015, they did so brilliantly beating South Africa should have, gone into the semi-finals really were the first side to win the number of games that they did not go into a quarter-final on points but then they made up for that in japan and so on but that was a program over about 10 years to develop that side because what we know is you can develop a broadcast market when as japan showed the national team does well and if you did that in america you you know you could eventually have broadcast uh revenues higher than england or france or, or japan and so on so and that's not just important for the USA because the money we generate from a World Cup gets distributed around, you know, 160 countries of the world to develop the sport over the next four years. So while it looks like it's a favouring USA policy, it's, it's a return on investment policy to get money back into the game elsewhere in the world as well. Mm,
1: definitely. So I guess sort of the recent news with World Rugby is that the re-election of Sir Bill Beaumont over the Argentinian Pico. I guess for more of our for our general sort of listeners and sort of our more yeah what what what's Bill sort of hoping to bring to world rugby and sort of change
2: yeah look I think there, there are a number of you know his his uh, manifesto was actually not I don't think that different to uh, to, to, to Gus Pichot's uh, program um, you know they're, they're looking at modernising the governance, um, making us more agile in our decision-making, professionalising that governance, Um, obviously increasing the strides that have been made in in player welfare, putting players more central to the decision-making, involving them a lot more in our governance, Um, developing some new markets for broadcasts, as I said, on on Rugby World Cup, enhancing the value of Rugby World Cup and Sevens and our Olympic involvement. Um, So, look, I think you know generally speaking their programs were reasonably similar um, and and maybe there there was a style difference and that's why the council voted the way they did but it was a close uh, contest um, and as i said what was what was interesting was they're both pretty much pushing a pretty similar program of reform and modernization um, and growing the game and in, and, and, and involving um, all stakeholders in, in, in the development of the game and so on. So, you know, Bill had done four years. This is his second four-year term. Uh, Gus is young enough to have another crack at it at some point in the future.
0: Yeah. So at the moment, there are a lot of players who are moving clubs. So a lot, a lot of people flock in Japan after having seen how competitive they're at the World Cup. And we is it time to sort of introduce like a transfer market to rugby rather than just having most players either coming to their academy?
2: Sorry to introduce say I didn't hear that
0: a transfer market to rugby instead of having just most of their players coming through an
2: academy yeah they, they talk they talk about that and maybe that is something that might <clears throat> develop out of like it you know from football and so on i mean that that's the area of player transfer clubs uh, and so on a lot of unions feel that when you know clubs take uh, players out of their union that they should be compensated for the value of those players because they've trained them through to a point and so on. That debate goes on, but that's very much for the club rugby scene to be determining whether there's a transfer market how that would operate. Um, uh, and, you know, we're, as, as we said before, a bit more concerned about player movement in terms of their availability for international games. So that may well be a market phenomena that happens in future, but what's important for us is that those players are still available to play international rugby wherever they apply their trade for their clubs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is there a sort of current... That's yep. part of our
2: regulation, which is called Regulation Nine, which is so important to releasing and all of you know. FIFA have the same issues; they need their players released from club uh, club games so that they can play international games as well.
1: Mm. Is there a current league or sort of a system in sport that world rugby sort of maybe not aspiring but trying like see sort of the light in and sort of be similar to? No,
2: not not really. Um, you know, maybe some of the club leagues are aspiring to be like the Premier League and and, and so on. It, it's, it's a quite a different setup you know the, the, there is a, a primacy of the international game um, in rugby which is quite unique to to, to, to to many sports there aren't many sports have such a strong international backbone versus the the, the club backbone and probably from a broadcast audience point of view uh, an international game is worth about 15 to 20 times a club game in in broadcast revenue and so on and and, you know, we, we like that situation because the international game doesn't just increase players' salaries. It actually provides development money to structure the sport, to grow the sport, women's sport, um, teams, participation, communities. Um, and, you know, only only governing bodies do that. Clubs tend to yes, they do contribute to the, to the community and the club setup does of course contribute to the community, but a lot of increases in, in revenue tend to find their way into increased player salaries, which is not a bad thing if you can afford it. Um, but the federations and the governing bodies are the ones that invest in the, in the growth of the grassroots of, of the game. And that's important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That obviously makes sense. Um, Moving on. So do you think in the future that there will be ever be an opportunity to sort of merge the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere into one big global rugby calendar? Because obviously that's something that has been talked about to try and...
2: Yeah, look, we we tried. It depends what you mean by one rugby calendar. Um, You've got to look at these things through the eyes of the fan. And what's important is that there is meaningful competition and that it rolls into a narrative that the fans appreciate. Because at the end of the day, if you haven't got your fans, you haven't got the revenues players won't have salaries the sport won't grow um and so it's about creating a a a narrative for the fan that makes it more compelling and interesting that they're willing to pay money to watch um that more people are willing to to come in and watch and, and and so on so we attempted to do that through the nation's championship which didn't get off the ground for a number of reasons but you know we 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 actually had a back of for about 6.2 billion pounds. We were using the current footprint of the northern, south, southern windows. We were using the Six Nations and the Rugby Championship as the basis to which you'd move forward on points. Um, that each player in the each team in the competition would play each other once through the year, and they'd be a final at the end of it. And so each maybe two years of four, you'd have this World Championship, so to speak, World Nations Championship. At the time, the Six Nations, there were two barriers to that. Um, six Nations were, were against a relegation promotion system because they're a commercial entity protecting their six members. And they felt that was a threatening element that they would find themselves out of the Six Nations. And um, at the same time, they're also talking to some private equity money and wanted a cash injection immediately rather over time, which is what we were proposing. So. It fell down. Now in the meantime, there have been lots of conversations, and I think there is a movement towards <clears throat> a more coherent competition of a championship of a kind that will happen, maybe two, maybe yeah maybe two years in the four, that's similar to that nation's championship, um, but that overcomes some of the obstacles that we found when we were leading that process. and we're part of the process in finding a new competition. But again, it's about creating a competition. And, you know, what might make it better is having October, you know, October and November, moving July to October, having those two windows over a period of eight weeks. So there's a more focused narrative for the for fans and so on or not. You could still do what we were doing, which is have the six nations, have the nations and then have them come together in November in some form of playoff that gives you a world champion in two of the years. At the moment, the November window, the problem is it's just fixtures. They're great fixtures. And no, there's no such thing as an unmeaningful test match, but it's more meaningful if it's part of a roll-up of a competition and that someone can win a competition at the outset. And that's what you're trying to solve. Both July and November have no competition meaning and therefore it, it doesn't come at a higher interest level for fans. And that's what they're looking to solve at the moment.
0: Do you think there's ever a window, say, for on the club scale to have sort of the winner of the Heineken Cup plays, the winner of the Super Rugby.
2: Well, that's another thing that's being looked at. I think it's being looked at both by World Rugby and by the clubs is, is there the possibility, and again, it might be once every four years, um, is a a Club Rugby World Cup, and a Club Rugby World Cup would, you know, benefit from the IP of, of the Rugby World Cup brand, or is it just a simple championship playoff by the top four or eight teams uh, around the world that happens also each point that that's been looked at that that will happen at some point it'll be in the, the club part of the calendar and and something i'll have to give every four years to make that happen it might be a truncated version of, of of one of the existing competitions but some somewhere they'll room will be need to be found in 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 the club area of the of the calendar mm-hmm. the trouble is we haven't got enough weeks to do everything the clubs and the internationals would want to do to earn money and at the same time, you've got to be careful because more games don't mean more money. You want to, you want the specialness of international rugby to be retained. You don't want it to be saturated, and you also don't want to saturate the players um, because those key players um, can be worn out very quickly if they're not managed in terms of their own player welfare and the frequency and intensity of the games that they're playing.
1: So I guess on that topic of clubs and Super Rugby, at the moment we see sort of the All Blacks sort of perhaps going their own way. We see South Africa perhaps getting almost pushed out and Australia sort of in this limbo state where they don't know if they want to join the All Blacks or sort of become independent, and never mind sort of Japan and Argentina. Where do you see, I guess, with all the five nations, where do you see Super Rugby, or well, I guess the nations within Super Rugby go in terms of club?
2: Yeah, look, it's interesting. And also, you know, you have to separate Super Rugby, which is, again, a commercial uh, operation, which is underpinned um that, that the rugby championship in fact does a change in super rugby participants necessarily mean a change in the rugby championship itself but it it, it may not necessarily the rugby championship uh, could well retain the four teams that are there and we're seeing all sorts of things in the media and i know that no more than you on that front than what is reported that new zealanders want a certain number of teams in a trans-tasman uh, set up with Australia. South Africa seem to be on the out. They've got some teams that have come to the Pro 14. Is that the direction of travel? Are they going to go more domestic? Um, are they going to debase somewhere else in the Southern Hemisphere, a team that might be in the rugby, in the Super Rugby? No, no one knows. They're, they're, they're looking at all of these different versions. But I do think the Rugby Championship of those four teams, remember Argentina only just recently came into Super Rugby. They were in the Rugby Championship pro- and all their players were playing in France. And so I think the Rugby Championship is a highly valuable tournament, particularly if in the future it underpins and rolls up into an annualised Rugby Championship as well that's on a more global scale. So I think we've got to sit and watch and wait and see what the Super Rugby nations decide for Super Rugby. But it does seem there's there's some rapprochement between New Zealand and Australia to find a solution um, themselves and argentina and south africa don't don't seem to be in some of the plans that you're seeing in the media and again i'm reading it like you are on that and hearing maybe a few more rumors than you are but i don't want to go into those
0: understandable so one thing which has been confirmed announced that the all blacks are going to play in the australian rugby league side towards the end of the year has that been
2: confirmed a... i've seen different articles that they it's been confirmed and not confirmed, and I'm not sure that has been
1: confirmed. Yeah, I think the date's been penciled in, but so I guess whatever that means.
2: Yeah, look, that's an interesting. What what, what that shows is everyone is desperate for revenue <laughs> at the moment, and that would probably be a curiosity for broadcast and for fans. Um, I think these kind of mixed code games, and we've seen them in Aussie rules with Gaelic football. We've seen it in the past, actually even in England at the time, that rugby were professional between rugby league, which was professional and rugby union in the 90s. I always think they sound a lot better than they actually turn out to be. It's a bit like the mixed, we used to have mixed martial arts with Muhammad Ali as well. And they were big purse winners and big money spinners. And look, again, the game, we're often not as innovative as we should be. Maybe that's something we should be looking into. But in that part of the world, that will create huge interest because rugby league is a very big sport in Australia in particular. Uh, and the all blacks, obviously uh, iconic status and anyone they play will garner interest.
0: So you don't, you don't think there's a long, on the sort of looking at the longer term, there's not a market for it to develop into anything.
2: Well, I don't really see the purpose or the point of it. Um, no, not, not particularly. I mean, rugby league is, is a cousin sport um there you, you, you there are a lot of similarities but obviously it grew out of rugby union um and i grew up in australia and grew up partly in sydney and, and know the the strengths of rugby league but it's a relatively small game on the international sphere it is, it is played in 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 northern england sydney and brisbane it's a team in new zealand called the warriors it's a team in france Um, it's relatively restricted Um, so you know it's about getting rugby union rights um, not about about games like that I think but if it brings rugby league fans into the rugby union franchise maybe that's a good thing
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing which has come out in the last couple of days is the fact that World Rugby are considering to reduce the amount of substitutes. So I know a coach, such as Eddie Jones, sees that less yeah, substitutes that, would be a better idea. What can you sort of just go slightly further into this?
2: Yeah, that's a, that that that's, might that's, mean. A, that's a debate. The general debate, and, and we have a, a rugby committee, which which is forming into a specialist group in the future of people who really are there to shape the game. And, leading coaches such as Eddie Jones will be on that group and he'll have his chance to say, give his view as will all of the the leading game shapers, let's call them. Um, and his view is very much that fatigue, I think, is something which will help open the game up and with all the replacements coming on and so on, you don't know, get that fatigue um, and therefore the game's not opening up and providing the continuity it should and let's you know stop the those those delayed areas of the game whether it be scrum resets tmos etc and all the rest of course we're for all of that all of these things need an evidence-based approach though to measure what the implications are on player welfare it's all very well to say you want players to be fatigued but that may create a spike in in injuries and there's another theory that says actually fresh players coming on and playing against some fresh players will cause spike in injuries and we're doing a lot of work Around this, so that any decisions we make in these areas lead with a pub, a public, uh, sorry, a, a player welfare point of view. But all of these things always need to be trialed at some point in a, in an elite competition to see what the outcomes are. So, I think I, I definitely think the reduction of 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 reserves has been replacements has been talked about for a while. So there could well be a trial in that area, and a trial in other areas to accelerate or eliminate let's say some of these dead periods in the game and keep the continuity going but with continuity often comes higher velocity higher injury rates and so on so so all of these things have to be managed we change something over here in rugby something else over here some unintended consequences come of that and that's why they need to be thoroughly trialed and analyzed uh, on an evidence-based player welfare approach
1: I just want to ask one more question on that topic of, um, I guess, of opening the game up and a bit more fluidity. What sort of, I guess, world rugby or perhaps your impression on the current sort of fifty twenty two rules in Super Rugby or like the goal line dropouts that they've introduced?
2: Yeah, they're all part of the trials that we that we pushed. We had a we had what, what normally happens at the end of a four year cycle. A trial, a, a, a law process is a four year cycle, which is very very slow in many ways. We can bring in laws for player welfare. The executive committee can vote it on on, on the hoof. But generally speaking, there's a cycle where after a World Cup, unions provide probably about 100 ideas that get discussed in a law law review group, which is representative across the world. gets narrowed down to probably about 15. They get trialled in certain competitions. Then it becomes a northern trial, southern trial, global trial. And in the year of a World Cup, no trials because you want everyone... Operating under the laws of the game that will be under 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 a World Cup, so uh, you know it's now I've gone down a rabbit hole there. What we, what was the original question? You so were if,
1: what, does World Rugby see trial the, trial the does World Rugby see the current sort of changes with the 50? Yeah, so those changes. What I was going to
2: say. So that's the normal law trial process, but we had our first player welfare-led law session about a year and a half ago, there was a series of, of tragic deaths in the French game. Um, we'd never seen a, a, a spike such as that in any country. And there was a series in France that led us to do a forum of law change that was entirely... The objective was to reduce the injury rate rather than make the law test it to ensure that mm. it doesn't spike injuries. This was, let's design some laws... That will actually reduce injury rates and so on. And actually, the the 5020 or the 5022, or whichever way you want to call it, was one of those such laws. And there are trials being happening in France at only tackling waist height. There's a whole series of trials happening in different competitions that are addressing the how to reduce injury rates. And the 5020 law is one of those because it obviously. Uh, requires you to put your, put your wingers back on the touch. It opens some spaces. There's a few less uh, collisions and so on. Um, it's more about evasion than running through. Uh, and so you know, these are small modifications that we're hoping, and that's in trial in the Super Rugby. And at the end of the Super Rugby, season, we'll have all the stats that show what did it do to concussion rates, what did it do to collision rates, breakdowns, etc so each of these are analyzed absolutely thoroughly to work mm. out what effect they had on the game and they'll have some effect that we didn't intend somewhere else that may be positive or negative as well yeah that's, that's one true. example of that
1: yeah well i personally loved it but uh, brett i just wanted no, it's to say great, i think it's you've know,
2: mm. seen some i saw on the weekend some some really good kicking
1: yes yeah, in that
2: way yeah. that you see the wingers having to drop back and yeah it makes it more interesting now it was a rugby league idea and there's some ideas mm. that 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 will that will steal from rugby league is um, I'm sure they steal a few few of ours, um, but that's that's a, a good one to open the game up.
1: Sure. Well, bro, I just want to say like thank you very much for coming on our podcast. It was fascinating to hear, I guess, all about sort of what's going on underneath rugby and sort of supporting rugby as a sport that we all love and sort of what's going to happen in the future. So thank you.
2: That was yeah, my, pleasure. You very my pleasure. My pleasure. Hopefully all the regulatory stuff and the, and the, and the, when you're talking about it in a world view, it may not be quite as interesting as when we're talking about individual clubs and so on, but hopefully it's been of interest to your audience in some way.
0: No, really enjoyable. Thank you. Details thank
2: you very thank much you. indeed. Thank Good you. luck guys. Oh, come on. Come on. Go.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network.